morning, friends, and it's lovely to be together with you this morning, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word uh, to you this morning. Thank you, Liesl, uh, for reading from Isaiah 42. What we're going to be doing uh, over the next uh, three weeks or so, and in the lead-up to our commitment series in November, and more broadly as we head into the Christmas period, is we're going to spend a little bit of time reflecting on some of the Old Testament background that really sets the tone and the expectation around uh, the coming Messiah. And particularly what we're going to be looking at are what are often called the servant songs um, from the prophet Isaiah. They're so called because they have this um, beautiful poetic uh, ring to them and because they introduce us to this very interesting figure, uh, the servant of the Lord, uh, who brings about God's purposes uh, for his people uh, and for his world. You know, something interesting to ponder, uh, after the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah is actually the most quoted book uh, in the New Testament. Uh, what is that saying? Well, that's saying that in order to understand Jesus, well, the apostles believed that if we want to understand Jesus and his mission, we need to understand Isaiah's message. And I think they were convinced of that because Jesus himself drew so much from the prophet Isaiah for his own mission and his own ministry. Um, Peter, whose first letter we've been studying uh, over the last several weeks, you will remember, quotes frequently from the prophet Isaiah, perhaps most famously uh, from the final servant song uh, in Isaiah chapter 53, by his wounds uh, we have been healed. And we'll get there in a couple of weeks' time this morning. We're looking here at chapter 42, this first of the servant songs that introduces us to the servant of the Lord. Let's look at it together, but before we do that, uh, would you please pray with me and ask God's help. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together so freely this morning as your people. Lord, we thank you that we do so together with your people worldwide. Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Um, the way that Isaiah ends this vision is with a reminder, Lord, of who you are, that you're the one who declares things um, before they happen. And so we thank you that we can look at the, this word spoken 700 years before the coming of your Son. Help us to see him in it and help us to see your character, your nature, your mission more clearly and help us, each one of us, um, to see how that applies to our own hearts, to our own lives this morning, uh, wherever we might be. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure that many of you would agree with me this morning that we're living in a time of considerable political and economic uncertainty and upheaval. We've had recent violent uprisings in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, in Syria, in Afghanistan. And of course, the war in Ukraine is now already in its seventh month and often seems on the brink of spilling over into the rest of the world uh, with the sabotage of the Nordstrom pipeline, the bombing of the Crimean bridge, and the constant threat of nuclear weapons. And of course, all of this is driving higher inflation rates, putting pressure on fuel and food prices worldwide. So many are becoming increasingly desperate uh, with the worldwide situation. You know, I want to suggest to you this morning that the situation that we're in in the world today is in some ways not too different to the situation that of Isaiah's day in the 8th century BC. Uh, these were also days of great upheaval. Uh, the great Assyrian Empire was sweeping across the ancient Near East, uh, swallowing up all the smaller kingdoms around it. Uh, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. 
And in 701 BC, 20 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah had all but been defeated, and the city of Jerusalem was under siege uh, by the mighty Assyrian army, uh, which is really how the book of Isaiah opens. Uh, just listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 1. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. It calls to mind some of those pictures of the bombed out buildings that we see uh, coming from Ukraine. Daughter Zion, that is Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. It's a picture of the enemy armies encamped around the city of Jerusalem, threatening to overthrow it. And you know, the first half of the book Isaiah, from chapters 1 to chapters 39, is really warning the people of God that although they might escape this Assyrian threat, as they eventually do, uh, their unfaithfulness to God's covenant is going to eventually lead to a devastating judgment on them as well. Uh, it's going to take the form of defeat and exile at the hands of the Babylonians, uh, the next powerful empire to arise uh, not long afterwards. So that is the first half of the book of Isaiah. But then the second half of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 40 onwards, there's a dramatic change of tone. And what we really have in the second half where these servant songs occurs is a word of hope, a word of hope spoken to the exiles, those who are now living hundreds of kilometers away from their homeland, uh, living under pagan rule. And it's a message of hope that centers around this figure uh, of this, the servant of the Lord who appears four times uh, in the second half of the book. And my structure this morning is simple. And I want to, as we look at the song in chapter 42, I want us to think a little bit about the identity of the servant. Uh, who is the servant? I want us to think about the mission of the servant. What's he going to do? And then finally, I want us to think about the character of the servant and think through how this looks forward. Uh, to the coming of Jesus. So let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about the identity of the servants. Here is my servant, Isaiah says, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Uh, who is Isaiah referring to here as he speaks about uh, the servant of the Lord? You know, many would argue that the servant must be referring to the nation, the nation of Israel itself. Uh, Israel, are, of course, in the Old Testament, called God's chosen one. Uh, they're often also called God's servant. In fact, that's true in, immediately, in the immediately preceding chapter. But you know, as you read these songs carefully, you'll notice that the servant, although he embodies and although he represents the people, he's in fact also often distinguished from the people. Uh, when the servant is being commissioned here, and this is also the basic structure of this passage, just to take note of, the first four verses we have the presentation of the servant. Here is my servant. From verses 5 to 9, we've got the commissioning. But did you notice when, this, when the servant is being commissioned, that he's distinguished from the people? Uh, verse 6, the Lord says to the servant, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. Uh, famously, in the, in, in the final servant song in Isaiah 53, there Isaiah speaks on behalf of the people, and he says of the servant, Surely he, the servant, took up our pain, the pain of the people, and he bore our suffering. In other words, the servant is God's personally commissioned agent 
who's going to act on behalf of God's people uh, and on behalf of God's world. And did you notice also here that the servant is going to be a royal figure, one who, like Israel's anointed kings, uh, David and Solomon, is going to be empowered by God's Spirit to accomplish those purposes. I will put my spirit on him, the Lord says through Isaiah, and he will bring justice to the nations. And you know, if Isaiah's whole prophecy had been fresh in our memory, we couldn't help but hear the echoes here of the earlier promise, uh, the promise of the Messiah King that, that we have in chapter 11. Uh, just hear these words from Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, Jesse, remember, was David's father, the one through whom the kings, um, Israel's kings would come, eventually the Messiah would come. And from his roots, Isaiah says, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, uh, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. It won't merely be external. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. You know, and as we bring these two images together, the spirit-anointed king in David's line and the spirit-anointed servant in the servant songs, you might say that Isaiah is telling us here that the way that this king identity and his kingship should primarily be understood is as servanthood. He will first and foremost be a servant. And isn't this good news for our world? I don't know what your uh, experience has been, but it's often at times of uncertainty and upheaval, uh, like the times we're living in right now, that people are increasingly open to accepting the limits of all human resourcefulness, the limits of all human ability to set the world right. Now, what a great opportunity we have in these times to demonstrate our hope in a God who is beyond us, a God who offers us hope, and a God whose identity is that of a servant and who promises to send a servant king. That is something of the identity here of the servant, God's promised coming king. Let's think secondly about the mission of the servant. I wonder if you notice how emphatically the mission of God's servants is emphasized here. You know, when the Hebrews wanted to emphasize something, they would say it twice. When they really wanted to emphasize something, they would say it three times. Like in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, where the seraphim who have this vision of God cry out three times, Holy, holy, holy. It's a way of saying that God is utterly holy. That is the essence of his character. Three times. We're told here what the servant's mission will be. He will bring justice to the nations, verse 1. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice, verse 3. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth, Isaiah tells us. I wonder what you think of when you think of justice. You know, the Hebrew word here repeated three times for justice is mishpat. And it's, it's an active word. And the essence of its meaning is giving to each person what is their due, what is their right. Whether that's punishing evil and oppression or it's upholding the good, particularly in the Bible, defending and uplifting the victims of oppression and injustice. It's what's often called rectifying justice, setting the wrongs right. 
Now, in the Bible, it has to do with restoring God's good order to the world. And you know, being created in God's image, is this not something that we long for in every sphere of life? Don't we long for justice? Uh, don't we long for justice in the home? You know, I hear the cries of justice um, from the bathroom, from my children, when, when one of the children is hogging all the little toy cars for themselves. And my wife is rightfully angry that I'm so caught up in something else that um, I don't intervene. We long for justice in our marriages. We long for justice in the workplace, that we would be paid fair wages that reflect the value uh, that we're adding. We long for justice in global politics. And I'm sure you heard recently the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, called for just punishment for Russia for its invasion. I think he, he may, maybe fears that Russia is just going to pull out and say, okay, it's all over now, things can go back to normal. And he's saying, no, there needs to be justice. And you know, the promise here, did you notice, is that there will be justice in every sphere. Did you notice here the scope of the servant's mission? Uh, he will not falter or be discouraged, verse 4, till he establishes justice on earth in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And verse 6 again, I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, the people of Israel, and a light for the Gentiles, for the nations um, outside of Israel. This is a striking vision. The servant's mission here is not going to be limited to the people of Israel, but it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. Uh, in his teaching, in his Torah, that's the word for law, in his teaching, his Torah, the islands, uh, the edge of the map of Isaiah's geography, the islands are going to place their hope. Uh, this servant is going to be a new Moses who's going to bring a new law of justice to the world. But you know, while this is something new that God is going to do, it's in fact nothing more than the fulfillment of God's original purposes and his original ten intentions for his creation. Uh, verse 5, this is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. The God who in the beginning created us, who gave us life, who gives us breath and food every day, is the same God who's going to set the world right through his servants. He's going to bring justice. Uh, that is his mission. But how is he going to do this? Uh, let's think finally about the character of the servant. We've looked at the identity, the mission. Let's think about his character. And Isaiah really uses some striking metaphors to describe him here. Because I don't know how, um, what, what you would think about, um, but as I look at the world around me so full of injustice, I think I would envision quite a different character as one who's going to bring justice. Perhaps someone who's stern, who's uncompromising, someone who's ready to rebuke. But Isaiah gives us quite a different picture here. I will put my spirit on him, verse 2, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not going to be a big talker, someone who announces himself in the public arena. No, he's going to go about his work in a quiet and unassuming way. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but leaders typically care mainly about the powerful, about the influential within their communities and within their organizations. And that's natural in some ways because they are the people they need to leverage in order to get things done. 
But did you notice here the servant will be quite different? He's going to have a special concern for the weak, uh, for the downtrodden. He will not trample over them. He will not exploit them in order to get on with his program, in order to get the things done that he wants to, to do. No, Isaiah tells us, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You know, you get the picture that the servant will be particularly drawn to the broken, to, to the bruised reed, to the smoldering wick, to those who have little energy left for life, those who are despondent, those who have given up on life. You get the sense here that he's going to be especially attentive to their needs and make it his priority to address them. Uh, the servant is going to be gentle. He's going to be humble. He's going to be fair-handed. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. But he also won't be weak, and he certainly won't resort to half measures. You know, how easy it is as we come face to face with the immense problems of our world and relationships that don't seem to be able to be fixed, how easy it is to, to lose heart, how easy it is to burn out. And what an encouragement here we have, that he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. I wonder wonderful character we have a picture of here. Wouldn't it be good news for our world if the servant of God were to arrive and bring justice and to set the world right? Well, I want to just close off this morning just reflecting on how, according to the gospel, this, this servant of the Lord, promised 700 years earlier, is remarkably and strikingly fulfilled uh, in the person of Jesus, the Messiah uh, in David's line. I think firstly about Jesus' commissioning uh, at his baptism and just hear the echoes of here is my servant whom I uphold, the one I delight in. I will put my spirit on him. Uh, Mark tells us as Jesus goes out um, to be baptized at the Jordan, Mark chapter 1 verse 10, that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This is his commissioning, his empowering for his mission. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here it becomes that clear that the servant of God is none other than the son of God at the same time. I think about Jesus' words in his first public sermon in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I think of Jesus' consistent care for the poor, uh, for the outcast, for the weak. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew records for us what happens after Jesus healed uh, a man on the Sabbath and the rage that this brought down on him from the religious leaders. Uh, Matthew writes there in chapter 12 that aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This, this, Matthew tells us, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. It was Jesus' quiet, humble work, his consistent care for the needy, for the outcast, for the outsider, uh, that Matthew especially sees as being fulfilled um, as a special fulfillment of Isaiah's vision. But you know what all the gospel writers see as the climax of Jesus' mission of bringing justice to the earth? Do you know where all the gospel accounts actually end? 
they all lead up to Jesus' death. Uh, that is the moment where his work is finished. That is where God's justice is finally demonstrated and paid. And how can that be? Just think with me for a moment about justice. You know, justice says that all wrongs must be paid. When a wrong has been perpetrated, it must be paid. You know, and there are only one of two options there. Either when we've been wronged, we can make the perpetrators um, pay. There can be some kind of reprisal for that wrong. Um, I'm sure you heard just a week back, there was the bombing of the Crimean Bridge. The next morning, there were Russian bombs raining all over the Ukrainian city, cities. It was a reprisal. It was a pay, payback. Um, so there are only one of two things that can happen. Either we can make the perpetrators pay, or we can refuse to make the perpetrators pay. But what does that mean? That means we pay. That means we suffer. That's the essence of forgiveness, a costly suffering. And you know, the amazing message of Jesus' cross is that Jesus looked at the world full of injustice, all the wrongs, all the atrocities, all the abuses, all the hurt that we all have in some way contributed to. And Jesus said, this must be paid. This cannot be ignored. But you know, Jesus also said at the, at the same time, I will forgive, I will pay to set this right. I will suffer and die under the justice of God to bring God's forgiveness and pardon and God's hope to the world. And you know, when you see that, it actually changes you. It humbles you. It makes you realize that actually the problem of injustice is not just out there. The problem is also in here. The problem is with my own self-centered heart. Um, I am so bad that the Son of God had to die to forgive me. You know, when you see this, it actually turns you into a bruised reed, into a smoldering wick. It actually makes you willing to listen to, to those that you've hurt without immediately justifying yourself, without excusing yourself. You know, you don't go out into the world anymore thinking that you're the solution uh, to the world's problems. You know, I think we're very good in our culture today at recognizing certain aspects of injustice. How many are the victims of past injustices? And that is the reality of our world. You know, what we're not so good at seeing is how we've all, in one way or another, whether we're victims or whether we're privileged, in some ways participate in injustices in the world. Uh, the reality is that often the greatest victims of injustice also end up becoming some of the greatest perpetrators. But there's also an indictment on those of us here who've enjoyed a very privileged life and have no concern for the injustices uh, in the world around us. You know, seeing the Jesus as the servant king who died for us actually humbles you, but it also changes you to become a servant yourself. It makes you long to see justice. It gives you a concern for the poor and the weak because you know your own weakness. You know your own poverty. You know your own lostness apart from God's grace. It makes you long to see the message of the servant king go out into the world, which is really the only hope for our world. And what hope is there for us if we refuse this servant king? What hope is there for us if we cannot learn to forgive as he has forgiven us? And I just want to close this morning by asking, is this your hope for the world? Have you come uh, to this servant king? You know, one of the things that still persuades me that the gospel is true is this amazing, coherent story that spans across centuries. Um, Isaiah, uh, the Lord says here at the, at the end of Isaiah 42, uh, 700 years before Jesus came, see the former things have taken place. 
and new things I declare before they spring into being I announce them to you who could have orchestrated this other than the God who knows the beginning from the end the God who who had a plan from the beginning to deal with the injustices of the world who sent his son into the world to pay for the injustices who forgives us as we come to him now but who will one day return and bring that final justice uh, that we all long for isn't he a wonderful king uh, isn't he something to celebrate uh, we're going to end this morning by actually celebrating what Jesus has done for us through the Lord's Supper, uh, through the meal where we remember together uh, Jesus' body given for us, uh, his blood shed for us. Um, but as we do that, um, and before we do that, why don't we pray together and ask that the Lord would help us to see who he is and to become um, people like him. Our Lord, we thank you that you uh, are a God of justice. We thank you that your cross, Lord, shows us that you take evil and injustice seriously, that every uh, evil and injustice will finally be paid. Uh, Lord, we thank you that that is true and that therefore we don't have to repay that justice ourselves. Lord, thank you that we can forgive and knowing that you, Lord, will set things right. Lord, we pray that you would make us people like you, that you would humble us, that you'd show us our own sin, uh, the, the injustices that we participate in. But Lord, also that you would transform us and make us your servants in the world. Lord, give us a concern for the injustices. Help us not to care only for our own comfort. Lord, help us to be people who go out with your message. That there is forgiveness, that there is hope uh, for our broken and our hurting world. And now we pray to you, Lord, our Heavenly Father. We know that of your infinite mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. Lord, we know that you made there by your one offering of yourself, never to be repeated, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Lord, thank you that you asked us to remember this, um, your precious death, until you come again. And we ask you now, Father, to hear us and grant that we, receiving this bread and this grape juice in accordance with your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, that we would remember his suffering and death, that we may share in his most blessed body and blood, that we might remember that on the night that he was betrayed, that he took bread, and when he had given you thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Help us to remember that in the same way after supper he took the cup and when he had given you thanks he gave it to them saying drink this all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord we remember these words and we come to you now. Amen.